Okay. So continuing with the theme of showing how science can reveal cool and amazing things uh, in God's creation, today we're going to, really briefly, before we get into class, talk about the things that live inside you. So this is kind of a, a big deal these days in science, and you've probably seen this all over the place about your microbiome and how important that is. But I, I was just thinking how, how cool that was, because um, I'll, here, I'll give you a closer look. Ooh. Um, I'm not sure if that's actual color or not. But um, uh, there are about some quick facts that inside your body there are around 10 times more bacteria cells than human being cells, which kind of boggles your mind. They're a lot smaller than human cells. That's why. <laughs> but uh, count, like, bacteria per bacteria, you are more bacteria than you are human. Uh, that's including 25 species in your stomach, 5 to 1,000 species in your intestines, 600 more plus species in your mouth and respiratory system, and 1,000 different species in and on your skin. So don't use too much antibacterial hand soap because you're going to kill off the, the little guys that need you. And the reason that this has been uh, interesting to me recently is that, um, as some of you guys know, I have Parkinson's disease, and there a lot of research is figuring out that for, for a lot of people, Parkinson's disease t seems to be starting in the gut with a possible issue with the microbiome or something. And so there's a lot of research figuring out, like, what effect could changing your microbiome have on Parkinson's disease, improving it or making it worse or, or whatever. And there's a lot of other maladies and diseases along those lines that have to do with all these little guys running around inside us. So anyway, interesting stuff. I'm actually going to be part of a... Uh, a uh, scientific study where they're going to in, uh, look at my microbiome. I'll leave it at that because you said breakfast. <laughs> <coughs> but <laughs> anyway, uh, before we move on to the actual class, I wanted to let you guys know that um, this this is the this book, The Lost World of Genesis One, is the book that I'm. Um, I encourage you guys all to get this book. And read it. Um, it's go it's going to be my primary source for the rest of this class. Up until now, it's been mostly my research of different books here and there. Um, this this guy's um, this is basically a a commentary on Genesis chapter one. So a whole book on one chapter. And I initially thought about teaching this class entirely on Genesis chapter one, just based on this book. But the more I got into this, it's it can be very technical. The guy's a, a Hebrew and ancient cultures scholar, and he's written a ton of other books. Uh, I really like the stuff he has to say, but um, <coughs> it, it is available at the library, I'm sure, and on the, is it available on the Hoopla app? If, if you're familiar with the Hoopla app, it's, it's through the library here in town. You can borrow like up to 10 digital things a month, and it's, it's one of those things you can borrow. So I, I recommend you re read it because the things I'm going to go over this, in this class are going to, I'm going to be able to hit the high notes on a lot of this stuff. He goes into a lot more technical detail about like the the texts used in the archaeology and the Hebrew studies and yada yada yada. So if you really want to deep dive into this, highly recommend this book. Um, but moving on. So last time. Uh, 
as we're starting to get into, so I, I see a few visitors here, where we've been study, looking at science in the Bible in general, and then kind of moving into um, chapter 1 of Genesis, because that's Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the, the crux of the matter when it comes to the conflict between science and the Bible for most people. And so as we're starting to look at this, last week we looked at a lot of the many creation stories, and these are just images of the many Egyptian and Babylonian creation stories around the same time as the Israelites uh, would have received and before the Israelites would have received the Genesis 1 in written form. And we went over a lot of the similarities between them um, and their obvious links to the Bible. Um, and I did that to, to, to try to get into the, inside the head of the people of the time. As I've mentioned, and probably ad nauseum at this point, the fact that if you want to get, a, but the best understanding you can get of a scripture is to understand it the way the people who originally got it would have understood it. So we're trying to use the, the world around these people to understand their mindset somewhat, or at least closer than our Amer- Western American mindset. And the better we can understand them, the better we can understand the things that were written to them and the things that they wrote. That's Genesis 1. So as for the similarities, I'm not going to go through all these again, but all of the ancient texts that we looked at, and including Scripture for the most part, has these similarities when you, look, when you get down to it. Um, and it's, it amazes me how many of these are similar between like the... Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Astrahasis and all these other ancient texts and the Bible at the same time. Why is that? We discussed this a little bit last week. I don't, I don't know why that is. The couple of theories are that the Genesis account was the original account given, passed down by Adam verbally, just oral tradition over time. And as people spread, they hung on to a lot of those uh, concepts and ideas and they worked their way into other... Uh, stories at the time. The other way to look at it is that uh, at the time that the Israelites would have received Genesis 1 written by Moses, they were surrounded by these cultures. They had just lived in Egypt for 400 years and they knew the stories very well and that God was providing them a version of creation in a way that they understood creation already in, 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 in an effort to teach them something deeper and a more spiritual meaning than, than just, just how stuff was made physically. So it could be either one of those or a mixture of those, or uh, I'm not sure, but it doesn't really bother me either way because as what I want to show you today, if, if what you're looking for is how did physical creation happen, then I think the why of the similarities doesn't really come into play. And we'll get into to why that is in a minute. So, if we're going to understand the creation account, like I said last time, we need to understand what, what did creation mean to them. This may seem like a dumb question or, or a crazy question to some of you people, but some of you people, that sounds mean. Some, some of you guys, some of you folks, um, it may sound like a crazy question, but uh, it, it's actually very important because, as we discussed culture and language shifts over time, and our, our thoughts and impressions about uh, even concepts like creation or life or existence can change over that time as well. It's much more than 
It's much more than a, than a Hebrew study, which we will get into a little bit today. Um, don't fall asleep. Uh, but what we, in order to answer this question, what did creation mean to them? We will, like I said, we will look at the Hebrew stuff as well. But we also have to look at what existence meant to them. And that gets into the philosophical realm of ontology. Ontology just means the the information that or the properties of a thing that make it that make it exist. So the ontology of this chair would be the properties of the thing that make that chair exist. What it means for that to exist. So for um, the the along the lines of these questions that we have to ask is what did it mean for something someone in the ancient world to say that the cosmos existed. Uh, what did it? What sort of activity brought that state of being into meaning and existence? What constituted a creative act? Um, and which aspects of orange, origins did they see as most important? Um, so, then we got to talk last week about what does it mean to exist? And in modern times, for the most part, the first thing that comes into our minds when we start to talk about, you know, what does it mean to exist? We we land on physical principles, physical uh, uh, aspects of a thing, and properties of a thing. I can touch it, I can sense it, I can lift it up, or whatever. And if I can do those things, then the thing exists. Um, and this is what you'd call a material ontology. And but if you look at these ancient texts that we just talked about last week. The, the ontology that they're putting forth as primary, I mean, obviously they believe that if you touch a thing, it's there. But their primarily on, primary ontology was much more functional ontology-based. They were concerned with, does this thing have a purpose? Does this thing have a function in the world that I live in? If it doesn't, it might as well not exist. Ipso facto, it doesn't exist. So... It's like I said last week, it's like if you said to somebody, you're dead to me. You know that they're not dead to you, but for all intents and purposes, they, are, they are, don't exist to you anymore. And that's, that's, the, that's what we find in all these texts is the primary ontology of the ancient people at the time. And, if, and we're going to get into a little bit of Genesis 1 and show how Genesis 1 actually follows that through and shows a functional ontology as well. Um, so for them, if, if existence... Is, is hinges upon having a function in an ordered system, then creation means bringing that thing into existence. So creation means assigning functions and, and giving purpose to things, not necessarily material things you can touch and feel. So creation is a um, giving function and purpose. And I'm, I'm not going to get into the purpose aspect of it too much today. We're talking about function. Um, we'll get, get into purpose, which the study of purpose is teleology, and that, that's another cool thing to, figure, to look at, but we'll look at that later, some other time, when I don't want to load you up with too much philosophical mumbo-jumbo all at one time. But the, the stance I'm taking and the sense that this book takes and I, I, I fully agree with it, is that the, function, the, the ontology being described in Genesis 1 and the ancient world at the time is a functional ontology. This is what creation meant to them. It means giving a function and purpose. So if you go back to these texts, 
Um, so people have been studying these texts, including Genesis, for a very long time. And they, they know that from the kind of texts that they are, the kind of things mentioned in the books, they know that these things are creation texts. They know that they're stories about the world coming into existence, whatever existence means. And something the archaeologists and scholars have long been puzzled by is this fact that none of these, um, in none of these stories is anything material created, which is, seems strange for a creation text. Um, there's lots of forming, there's lots of dividing, there's lots of um, defining and naming things, and that and organization. Um, there's lots of those kinds of activities, but in nothing, in none of these stories does anything come from absolute. Like the term is used as ex nihilo, it means from from nothing. Nothing is made from nothing in any of these texts. They all start with something, um, which which has always stumped them. If there's nothing being physically created, how can these be creation texts? But one thing that they have never really looked at is going back in, and this is something that we can just now get a better handle on these days with more uh, study that we've been able to do with these ancient texts and others and etc. is they've never really stopped to say, well, what does it, what does it mean to exist? Because since around the 3rd or 4th century AD, worldwide concept of existence has been pretty much a physical of, uh, material ontology. That if something is physical, then it exists. And you can even see that shift in, uh, like, ancient, like the early church fathers, some of like the origin and some of these early guys, were much more along the lines of a functional ontology view of scripture than physical. And they, they, the concept that things were created out of uh, nothing didn't actually start being taught until around the third century. And so ev- all the modern scholarship has been based on just this assumption that everything is material. If, cre- if it's created, it's material creation. And so the reason they're stumped and frustrated is because they're not asking what does it mean to exist, which is what... Um, when you see these things as a functional ontology, it kind of answers a lot of those questions. And should I pause there and ask, answer any questions at this point? Because this is, I'm sure, super clear. I had to read the book five times. Okay, good. We all got it. Oh, good question. Yeah, second or third or fourth century around that era, that time period. Yeah. And and yeah, and so that's it. It it lasted longer in the ancient Near Eastern world than it did in in like Western, like in Greek Greece. That this idea started becoming more common earlier, like uh, Aristotle and those guys when and when they started getting into like early science, quote unquote, they started. Getting into the material properties of things, the uh, atomic principle, things like that, and they started realizing things are mo- very, very physical, 
And the, because they started understanding the physical, they started putting more emphasis on the physical. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about existence and this ontology stuff. It's not, does it actually exist? Is it, is it actually in re, a real-life thing? The, the study of ontology and existence uh, from a person's perspective just, just means what, is it, what, gives, what do they see as having the most meaning? What is most important to them when they're having a discussion about a thing? For us, in the very science-centric world that we are living in, the material properties of a thing are very important to us. And for them, the, the material things were just a given. They assumed that God made everything, as I believe he did. And th- at some point, God would have had made, to make things out of nothing. But that's what, not what they were concerned about primarily. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the definitions just changed. In ancient times, it was more functional because they, and it goes back to, I tend to be concerned about things I can understand, and if I don't understand something, I tend to not worry so much about it, it, like in general. And and so they didn't understand a lot of the physical properties, so it was just like, that's how it was. Yes. Yeah, that's a good example. And there's there's a lot of things like that that didn't have a, like in the stone age, people weren't really super concerned about metal that they found cuz what am I going to do with this shiny stuff? But once they figured out what to do with the shiny stuff, it became more important to them and it just progresses over time. Any other thoughts or questions? <coughs> so, um let me find where I'm in my notes. So, back to all these ancient texts. Um, they all, like I said, they all share the same functional purpose. Unless in these texts, you find a lot of instances where there are things in, like, in the background, in in the scene, if you will, like a play. They're in the scene, but they they don't exist until the deity gives them a purpose, says do this thing, or they forms two things into one thing, or whatever it is. And unless something, unless people or gods are there to benefit from the functions, the thing doesn't exist. So it it has to have meaning and purpose to a person or a god in these stories for it to exist. And... um, and unless something is integrated into a working ordered system, it does not exist. It can't just be out there floating by itself because it's unimportant at that point. So another aspect of these things is they all start with a chaotic, unordered beginning. They all start with something. Even the Bible starts with something. With God was hovering over the surface of the deep, over the waters. It starts with waters already there. Which is something that we tend to read past and like. I don't know what that means, but because he hadn't created water yet, but and actually he never does create water in in, in the the entire chapter one. If you notice it, he separates, but he never creates water. 
So they all start with something, but it's unordered and unuseful. I mean, a giant, a planet of water, how is that useful to a human or, at all? It's not useful at all. But if you do something with it, then it becomes useful, and then, then it exists and has meaning. Um, so, like I said, they would have definitely also believed that the material aspects of things were also created by the gods because nothing was created that is created without a god of some sort in these people's minds. And I think that that is absolutely true in, in, in the real world outside of these myths that God absolutely made everything that we see and touch and feel, but that, that, that may not be what this story that we're reading is about. Um, so, and if you think about it, it's, it, it's, it kind of is interesting to us that this, this idea of a functional ontology is not new. It's not unknown in our, in our world now, even today. Because if, if you think, if you, if you started a, a new job, this is where I work, in the cool building. Um, if you start a new, new job, are you concerned with who built this building? Probably not. You may, you may have interest in when it, w- when it was built. Um, it w- if, you're, if you are a builder, you may wonder, wonder what, kinds of wood that, what kind of wood that is or things like that. But the average Joe coming in to be a designer at this place, like me, is not concerned with the building itself or how it was built or who built it or whatever. I'm much more interested in what, what does the business do? Um, how is the corporate st- structure in place? Who reports to whom? Who, which departments have which uh, uh, responsibilities? How do we get stuff done? That's what I'm concerned about when I work at a place. And the same, the same kind of thing goes when you go to a stage play. Yeah, this is for Christy. She likes this one. <laughs> Yay, Hamilton. Um, if you go to a stage play, when you go to a theater, you, you may find the sets and the costumes interesting, and like you may be impressed by like the, the costumes and sets, but we know that the play exists and what the players are, are doing, what the actors are doing. And when someone shows up late to the play and says, hey, what's, 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 what did I miss? You don't say, well, last week the, they brought in a crew to build this set, and this is the guy who wrote it, or this is how they hired the set and, or hired the cast and how they picked who was the lead and all this kind of stuff. You tell them what happened, what the people did. And so this concept of a functional ontology, while it may not be the primary one in our minds, like the springs to mind, it is still very important to us. And it's, it's still not far from our consciousness. So if you t- did tell somebody who came late to the play about all the details of the sets and costumes before telling about what Hamilton's talking about right now, then you're giving them the wrong sorts of origins information. And that's what, what I'm getting at. There's, there are multiple kinds of origins information. And what we need to figure out is when, God's, when, when it says in the beginning God created, what kind of in, origins information are we about to get? And that is what brings us to Genesis 1. We're actually going to start looking at Genesis 1 a little bit deeper. Don't laugh. So with this all in mind, what, do you guys have thoughts on what this would mean for, if you believe me, which you're welcome not to. 
if you believe it, what, what does this mean for uh, Genesis 1 and the creation account? God doesn't give in, in one chapter all the science that we want to know about how God created the earth. Yeah. And I think that's, I think, partly what you're getting at, if I understand, with the functional ontology. Is yeah. We want to know DNA and this and that and all this stuff that we see, you know, that we can kind of understand now a little bit, but it's not there. You know, it's it's a very brief summary of and And like you said, with a different purpose. Yeah. Yeah, the Genesis 1 is... I think it's clear that it's not a, a science textbook. And it, we, like I said a couple weeks ago, we have a lot of questions as modern Americans. We want to know the science answers. We want to know how old the universe is. We want to know how human beings were created. Is evolution a part of it or not? We want to know all the DNA details, all this stuff. But Genesis 1 just isn't telling us that stuff. And if we go to it and try to squeeze that out of it, we're making the text do something that it's never intended to do which I think is something we need to be careful about doing. God wrote things, had things written down for a purpose, and so what I'm trying to figure out is what's that purpose and to not overload that purpose into things that we, as modern Americans, want to figure out. Any other thoughts? Yeah. So I read through it once. I'm glad to hear you read through it five times because I was still like, what? <laughs> but um, I, I kind of like it, so I don't know if you guys feel this too, but like when you're having a paradigm shift, That's funny. Yes. Well, one thing I am noticing is how much science is connected to history, too. I mean, I was just talking to the children how archaeology is a very fairly new science. When they first really started doing it in the 1800s, they did a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And they're learning to do it better. And a lot of the things we take for granted, our grandparents didn't know anything about it. So it's still new. Yesterday we were doing a, a little field trip around Devil's Backbone to learn about the and this lady who is a botanist, biologist, said, there's a lot of plants here in the West we don't know because we've been here only 150 years, us Western, you know, European white people. And we don't have that history of the natives here because either it wasn't passed down, we don't know the culture and language, you know, all the history yeah. that happened. So we're not sure sometimes what function, where did they come from. Some we know are not from the West, we're imported from here. And that just kind of blew my mind. There's plants we don't know Yeah, we don't have all the answers on science for sure. And I also want to be clear, I don't have all the answers on this. This is Steve's uh, best guess for what Genesis 1 is talking about. I'm not going to be mad at anybody for disagreeing with me or whatever. Just be nice. Um, but I, 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 the reason that I wanted to teach this class and specifically this, this um, view of things so much was how 
I, I, I try to listen to the, when, when things, when I'm, let me back up. So this is a topic that I've been like studying for a long time, 10, 20 years. And there are always these needling things that like discontinuity, things that just don't make sense, clashes in my brain. But when, when I come across things that suddenly like unlock this box that suddenly makes everything make sense, and things just click into place. That's what this concept of looking at how looking at Genesis one, what that did for me, for helped me understand. It just makes so much sense from the from the data we have, and and when you start backing up, and as we get into the days of Genesis, what that means, and that the functions that God gives us and gives things, all the way down to the last day of why did God rest? Like what is that about? What's the Sabbath about? That, that's actually one of the most interesting things about this entire thing is this, this concept of the Sabbath and what that means and how, how that applies to us. And so this is, it, it's a very different, like Corey said, it's, a, it's kind of a paradigm shift for a lot of us to think that, okay, we have a story about creation, but creation maybe doesn't mean what we think it means, which kind of sounds stupid or crazy. But um, I'm, I guess let's go on the journey together. <laughs> And we'll see how this this falls out, and uh, where where it ends up at the at the end. I think it'll it'll make a lot more sense. Um, in the na- in the last ten ish minutes we have, I do want to look at uh, verse one a little bit more deeply, because I think it gets into since I talked about what does this word create mean. Uh, I wanted to show you some there's some actual evidence in ju- in just even verse one that can back up this idea of a functional ontology view of things from, from Scripture. So um, I'll give you guys time to find that in your Bibles. It's kind of hard to find. Um, it's the beginning. Uh, so if you look at, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I'm just going to look at this section of that verse. In the beginning, God created. Um, as has been mentioned in, in last quarter's class about Genesis, it, it, the, the word bereshit, um, which means beginning, it, it doesn't say in the beginning, it just says beginning, and it talks about the beginning. Um, so what, what might, before I get into that, what might um, this verse mean? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about the different uh, views, like the many, many different views of Genesis chapter 1. But what, what might this verse mean? What's it talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that God's the one who did it, okay. Whatever, whatever, it, did, whatever it was, God did it. What about what does the beginning mean? What's the beginning of what? Let's start here. Yeah, let's start here. This is the beginning of things, like the first chapter of the book of everything. Yeah, it's just a place to start. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. It might be um, some the people who uh, ascribe to the gap theory believe that after, chap, after verse 1, that this is like, this is a separate creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then later... There's like there may be millions of years between verse one and two, and then you have another creation account later in, in verse two, and and the one that the creation that we're living in. Um, there, there's the idea that this is 
this may be a in the beginning period in the inter- like the first era um, could mean that like in the beginning of time like to emphasize that there is a beginning of time um, it, it could be lots of different things uh, a generalized state of things um, but when you, when you uh, uh, I better move on fast on this one um, there's probably always going to be disagreement on this one but when you get into the the Hebrew studies of this, uh, I'm I'm pretty certain that what's what's being described here is this is this is an introduction introductory statement of saying it's introducing chapter one, this story in the beginning period this happened um, because the this word however you say it bereshit whatever be careful. Um, <laughs> It's used several other times in Scripture, like, um, and it typically refers to a period of time rather than a point in time. So instead of saying, at the beginning point, this happened, it's, saying, it's, it's like saying, in the first year of his reign, King Zedekiah, and that actually is in um, Jeremiah 28, 1, it says, in the same year, in the, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. So the beginning, it's not at the beginning, it's in the beginning time period. Um, same thing in Job 8, 7 talks about uh, God says your beginnings will seem humble so prosperous your future will your so prosperous your future will be so not that the beginning point in time is is humble but his beginning the first part of his life so it, it refers to a period of time so so we're looking at in chapter one is this initial period in the initial period this is what God did so but what we're really concerned about in this class is more about what this create word means, bara. And I, I really agree with John Walton and some of the other folks that I've read on this topic that this world is this word is not necessarily having to do with assigning or creating a material from nothing. It's assigning functions and purpose, and it's, it's an organizational type of a term than a from nothing type of a term. And we kind of use create in that same way sometimes as well. I, I made a chair, or I created a a curriculum, or whatever. A cr- yeah, a painting. It, which it's yeah. I'm not going to labor that point too much. Um, and so we what we can do, even even if we're not Hebrew scholars, we can lean on them a lot. We can also check their work if we want to. But one of the things we can do to figure out what create means is to look how it's used, and that's the, the what we do with an English word that we don't know, or a, any kind of a foreign word that we don't know. We look at, if it's a noun, which verbs does it take? Or um, which ad- adjectives does it take? Or if it's, if it's a verb, what are its subjects and objects? If you know the subjects and objects of the verb, you can learn a lot about that word. So create, bara, is a verb. And so reemphasizing that it's not enough to know what create means, we have to know what bara means. And so if, if we're understanding what that means, looking at bara... The subjects of um, uh, the, the the word itself is used about fifty times in the Old Testament, and subject-wise, a hundred percent of the time, it's talking about God. God is the only one who can bara things; nobody else can do this. So it's not a human function; it's not a thing that just happens. It's something that only God does. And there there are other words for make and create. Uh, that uh, like asa, I think, is one that, that humans can do, 
but this one is the only one that God can do. So, okay, that helps us. We know that only God can do this thing. Whatever is being is happening in in chapter one, it's something that only God has the authority to do. And as far as objects go, um, and this is the important one for a material ontological view of things. Um, if if there if all of the objects of the this verb are material, or all of them are functional in nature, then then that tells us which one it is. Of course, it's not going to be that clear because it's it's language. But if if all of them, or if if there are any in in the material category that must be material, or there are any, and that there are none that must be functional, then you have to skew toward the, the direction of calling this a material word, a material creation word. And vice versa, if all of the objects that, you, that are created by bara are functional in nature and none of them are for sure must be material, then you can skew the, towards the other direction. Makes it make sense? So it's kind of a, a weighting thing. Um, so the categories of objects that this verb takes are... Um, Cosmos, ten times. People in general, ten times. Specific groups of people, six times. Um, specific individuals or types of individuals, five times. Creatures, twice. Phenomena like darkness or time, uh, ten times. Components of cosmic geography, three times. And um, one time, the a condition, a pure heart from Psalm 51, that God creates a pure heart. So, without going through all of these, since we don't have time and it would be boring, um, if you, if, without going through all of them one by one, the, uh, none of the usages of bara require it to be a material thing that's being created. Every single, every single one of them could be, even when it's like a person is like Adam, well, even Adam was formed, but when it says that like God created uh, a person, it, it could be understood as a as a functional creation type of a thing as well as um, a large majority of them do require a functional ontological view of things for example like a pure heart like you mentioned in psalm 51 um, god creating the north and south which are not physical things they're concepts and psalm 89 creating darkness in isaiah 45 and there are, there are many others so when we when we look at this word Bara, what it really comes down to is assigning functions or giving purpose to something. And while it, this word in the, in the ancient Hebrew could mean making a physical thing, none of the examples we find in the Bible anyway require it to be a physical thing. It could be understood in a different way, understood in a different way. And so what this all comes down to, to close out class, is what kind of, what sort of creation activity do we find in Genesis 1? Um, the stories that the Israelites would have been familiar with were all focused on setting things up, giving them functions. All these other stories from around them, from Egypt and Babylon, they're all concerned with giving functions and setting things up. We know that also that bada doesn't have to mean making a physical thing. And when we start going through the days, next week we'll start with day one. Um, when we start with day one, going through those days, we'll see even more support from Scripture itself that what Genesis 1 is talking about isn't necessarily the story of physical creation. It's the story of 
something else. It's a story of God giving purpose to the world in, in the way that the Israelites could find purpose in it themselves, which has a lot of implications, obviously, but that's what we'll get into next week. Thanks for being here today.